might grow in spiritual things. We ask all of this this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Vince. Choir did wonderful. First Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Maybe when we got done with Genesis, you thought, well, First Peter's a short book. We'll get through with it pretty quickly. We've made it all the way to verse 13 in four weeks. <laughs> so First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 is, is where we'll be. Uh, when I came to the church here four years ago, one of the things that I uh, was clear about, one of the convictions the Lord has given me, and it's been fun to get to pastor a church in this direction is that everything we do as a church that we will be a gospel-centered church that's our that's where we're going that's our direction or vision whatever fancy word we want to call it that's who we're trying to be that's what we're trying to do is to be gospel-centered in all that we are not that we've reached that not that it's a set destination of once we get there then we'll stop it's kind of a, a lifelong process and a direction that we're going to walk in uh, together so every event that we have, every gathering that we do, every project that we take on, every mission, everything that we do as a church, the gospel must be the central reason why, that it must be proclaimed and that it must be lived. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that this gospel, this good news of Jesus is the center of all that we do because it's so easy to drift from this if we're not careful. It's easy to do this in our individual lives and it's easy to do this as a church. Remember, Peter wrote, 1 Peter, to this group of believers that he calls these elect exiles dispersed across Asia Minor, that it's largely Gentile congregations with some Jewish believers mixed in with them, and that they're facing sufferings, that they're facing trials, and that there's more intense suffering and more intense trials on the horizon. And so much of this letter is written to give them hope. And we've seen what Peter's done. He's walked them through this glorious, gracious salvation in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. And now we finally get to some of the implications of this salvation. Do you see what Peter's done? And, and he's not even done, but he's, he's laid out the theology, the doctrine that, that, that comes from the Lord. So now that doctrine, that theology, that gospel leads to things that we're supposed to do in life. Peter's concern is, is because this suffering that's coming to these people, that they might be tempted to drift from the gospel to make their life a little easier. That they might be tempted to lose sight of why we live the lives that we're called to live. If we read the Bible and just think it's these list of rules that we have to obey or disobey, then inevitably what will happen is we will drift and we will disobey. We'll make up rules or excuses to justify why we want to break those things. But if we keep the gospel central and we understand why God has called us to these things, we're far less likely to drift. So I want to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and then we'll pray and we'll work through this verse by verse like we always do. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who has called you is holy, 
You are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. That's where we're going to pause this week. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that we do get to come to you this morning, and we have this passage of Scripture that you've given us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, to remind us, God, that, that your gospel, that the theology, that why we do what we do roots everything else. That our call to not be conformed to the world, that our call to be holy, to be sober-minded, to be obedient, is rooted in what you've done for us, the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us in our lives, help us this morning as your word is proclaimed to be encouraged where we need encouragement, to be convicted where we need conviction, and to grow in you and be more holy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's read verse 13 again. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we see a therefore in Scripture, we stop and we see what it's there for. Right? This is a principle we've applied over and over. So when we see a therefore here, we need to be reminded of why Peter has written this therefore. That there's things that come before verse 13. And if you've been here with us or you've read 1 Peter verses 1 through 12, then what you know is Peter spends a lot of time in those 12 verses writing about this great and this glorious salvation that God has given us. That the salvation is Father planned and Son accomplished and Spirit applied. And that this salvation provides us with a living hope. Jesus died, but He was resurrected. And so our hope is not dead. Our hope is resurrected and interceding for us on behalf of ourselves to God right now. And that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that's where our faith is. Our faith is in the living hope, the living God, Jesus Christ Himself. And then as Christians, if we're believers in Jesus, we have this eternal inheritance that's being kept by God for us. That this faith that we have leads us to the goal of faith, which is our salvation. Did you catch that last week? The goal of our faith is not to have more faith. And faith is only as good as the object of our faith is. So when it comes to Christianity, oftentimes we will spend so much time trying to muster up more faith or muster up more trust. And we'll say things or we'll hear things like, well, if I just had more faith, then things would be different. Maybe the problem is not our faith. Maybe the problem is we're not focusing on what's supposed to be the object of our faith. If the object of our faith is God and God himself alone, then the more we know about God, the more we know about God's plan of salvation, this gracious salvation that God has, has given us if we're believers in Jesus Christ, the more we know about how God works in the world and how God uses sufferings and He uses temptations and He uses trials and He uses blessings to grow us in Him, the more we know about how God has revealed Himself to us, the more we understand gospel, the gospel, the more we understand God, the greater our faith will be because we understand the object of our faith better. say it like this. I'm a, I'm a Denver Broncos fan. And when Dr. Bill delivered me in Johnson, Kansas, which you've never heard of because it's this tiny remote town in Kansas, it's 
an embarrassing fact of my life that I was born in Kansas. I can't get over it. But Dr. Bill stayed in my room after I was delivered, not to check on me, but to watch the Broncos play with my dad. And so every year I have faith that the Broncos will be good. I've said many things like in Elway we trust, in Manning we trust, Right now it's in Walmart we trust. If you don't know, the Walmart heirs own the Broncos now. That's why we shop at Walmart as a family. It does not matter how much faith I have in the Broncos. It does not affect how they do on the field one inkling. And so I can have the strongest faith in the Broncos possible. I can believe that we're never going to lose another game again, and that would be an ill-placed faith. Because my faith is only as good as the object of my faith. So if the object of our faith is not the Broncos, but God, and we're not forcing ourselves to muster up some emotional or some circumstantial trust in God, then our faith grows. The more we know about God, the more we know about the gospel, the stronger our faith in the Lord and the gospel is. Does that make sense? The more we understand God, the less our circumstances affect our faith. The more we understand God, the less my emotional feelings affect my faith. I know God is good. I know God is all-powerful. I know that nothing is beyond God. So no matter what comes my way, I have faith in God because the goal of faith is not more faith. The goal of faith is salvation. That's what Peter tells us. And the salvation that we, we saw last week, that these Old Testament prophets searched their own writings. They wrote these things down that the Lord had given them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then they turned back and looked at their own writings, trying to catch a glimpse, a peek of what this grace that God was lavishing on his people, that he's going to give to them, would be like. And what we saw is that there's angels in heaven who long to see this gracious salvation. So they're, they're crouching down and they're peeking down, just trying to witness it, because angels and humans are, are two separate, different created beings. Angels don't experience the grace of God like we do. But it's this grace of God that they sing about in heaven. It's so marvelous. It's so glorious. And they just long to see it, to witness it, to catch just a glimpse of it. And so because of that, because of the salvation that God has laid out, because of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, do you see what Peter's doing? All of that takes place in verse 12, and there has not been a command of Scripture yet. You can read verse 1 all the way through 12. There's not a command until you get to verse 13. What Peter is saying is because of everything that's been said, here's what you do. We have to understand the gospel before we start doing all of these acts and these works because they don't save us. They're a response from what God has done. And so Peter says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, this is a phrase in, in, in the Old Testament. They would say, gird up your loins. 
That's what they're saying here. So you'd have these, these uh, robes that the Old Testament people wore. If you remember Exodus, when, when God talks to Moses and he's going to send the last plague, and so the houses that have the blood of the lamb around the doorpost are, are saved, that they're going to get passed over, and everybody else, the firstborn son, dies. What God tells the Israelites there is he says, hey, listen, put your sandals on, and you're going to want to double knot them. Get your robe on and get it ready to run. If you have it down long and your sandals aren't tied, you're not going to be able to move as fast. You're not going to be able to flee from Egypt as much. If you're going into battle, you want to make sure that you can move and maneuver. And so God's telling them to tie it up. That's what the word here is, is do that with your minds. I had a professor in college who used to say, just because the tomb was empty doesn't mean our minds need to be. There's this kind of mysticism that, that hovers around spirituality in, in, in America and in our part of the world sometimes. And I believe it's a, a tactic of the devil where it says we don't need to, to think, we don't need to use our minds. Rather, we just need to kind of, of, of meditate to clear our minds of everything else. But that's not the command of Scripture. It's not to clear our minds. It's to fill our minds with the gospel, with the Bible, with God. And so this is important for us. Because on one hand, you don't need a seminary education to read and understand Scripture. But that doesn't mean we wouldn't benefit from one either. We read the Bible. We read it ourselves. We don't have to have all of that, that you know, classical theological training. While at the same time, we should continually be trying to grow more and more. And we would be very arrogant to say that over the last 2,000 years that God hasn't provided some, some men and some women who have written and said very good and clear things about the Bible that we could glean from their understanding of. We always measure it against Scripture. But we should be growing in our knowledge, in our mind where Christianity is unique. Again, the tomb was empty, but our minds are not. Fill them with the Lord. It's not this mysticism of just clear it out, right? We're not meditating. We're not Hinduism. We're not Buddhism. We're, we're filling our mind with what the Lord has for us, and we're getting it ready for action. We're not filling it with, with empty and worthless and futile things. We're filling it with things of the Lord. And then Peter tells us to be sober-minded. The idea of that is you need to be thinking clearly, not impaired, and, and, and intentionally. So we're actively thinking, we're clearly thinking with this mind that's being made ready because of the gospel. And what are we to do with that? Here's our command. Put our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So because of this salvation that Peter talks about in the first 12 verses, put your hope, your faith in Jesus and put it there completely. I love that word. We've talked about the Protestant Reformation a little bit in 1517. Out of the Protestant Reformation came five phrases that really kind of summarize the main idea of why the Protestants, you know, this, it's, we, we call ourselves Protestants because it comes from the word protest. We're Protestants. We protest some of the Catholic doctrines. And so the five reasons why Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church became known as the five solas. They are this. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. Five solas of the Reformation. Now, it's not any one of those words that caused the division. Right? Grace, faith, uh, Bible, 
to others. What caused the issues was the word alone. It's faith alone that brings the grace of God alone to us that saves. Nothing else. There's no works that we can add to this. There's no penance that we can do. There's no, no uh, helmet. None of that stuff brings us to the Lord closer. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Christ alone is who saves us. Not some idols that we worship or some statues. It's, it's scripture alone that is our ultimate authority. Not tradition. Not emotions. Not experience. Not feelings. Scripture alone is our final authority. And all of that is done for the glory of God alone. Not because he's needing somebody or he's longing for someone to make his team better or he just sees how awesome you and I are and he just wants us to be with him. No, God's glorified most when he saves people who cannot save themselves. It's the alone that stuck out in the Reformation. And if the gospel is true, then there's no created thing in this galaxy that can take that hope away. If we are completely and totally resting in the grace of God alone, what can give us cause to stumble? If my hope is in an uncreated God that despite all of my sin, all of my baggage, all of my junk, he saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we can get our minds ready for action, that we can be sober-minded, that we can set ourselves, our hope completely brought to us by the grace of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So because of the gospel, we have this hope alone in the grace alone of Jesus. It's the gospel that we hope that we already, uh, and because of this hope, we obey. Our obedience isn't to earn favor. Our obedience isn't to earn acceptance. Our obedience is in response to what God has done for us and what God has given us. The obedience causes us to be conformed, to, to, not, to not be conformed to our former ignorance. Now, <laughs> ignorance is a fun word, isn't it? It does not mean dumb. What ignorance means is you don't know. There's a difference between the two. Those who, who are lost think we are nuts because they don't know what we know. They don't understand what we understand. They don't see the gospel and hold to the gospel the way that we see and hold to the gospel. They think that life is all about what you can get out of it now while we're alive, and then after that, who knows? They don't understand that our hope is a living hope because Jesus died and didn't stay dead. That our desires, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, are not what they used to be. That God has changed our desires because we know now what we used to not know. That our souls have been made alive and that we spiritually crave things that are different than souls that are still dead. 
I read a story this week in an article that was about a guy's conversion to, to Christianity, and it just stuck with me, and it fits with, with what Peter is talking about here. And so I'm going to summarize the story for you. This, this guy was a, a partier, and he was into all aspects of the party scene, alcohol, drugs, etc. if you understand. And on a Halloween night, he had a, a, an old high school friend who was coming to town to stay with him for the weekend who he used to party with. So he said he bought this guy his favorite brand of alcohol and a lot of it. He had his favorite drugs laid out on the desk, and they were going to have a weekend that no one would remember. So when his buddy showed up, he took him to the room. He showed him everything. He was ready to get the night started. And he said his friend shut the door, sat down on the bed, and told him, I don't do those things anymore. And he told the, the guy who wrote the article that, that he loved Jesus and that he had come this weekend to tell him that Jesus loved him too. And this is what makes me laugh when I read the story. He said that his friend didn't leave. He stayed for the party. And he sat on the couch. And that everybody else came up to the author and was like, what is this guy's problem? And he told them he's a Christian. And they would reply in his own words, oh, poor guy, like he had caught a disease or something. What the author says is over the course of that night, he was haunted by his friend's words. There's all this music. There's all this laughter. It's just debauchery all over the place. And this Christian, in the midst of this party scene, sitting on the couch, had a peace that no alcohol, that no drug had ever provided him. And so over the next couple days that weekend, they, they talked. The gospel was shared with the author along with scriptures. But, but honestly, the author said he mocked his friend. And then they, they talked over the phone several times. They emailed back and forth. And in this, this letter that the guy, this, this article the guy wrote, he, he included an edited version of his email. <laughs> he said edited because I think it was filled with a lot of cuss words and it was posted on a Christian site. It is heartbreaking to read this. He says this as the one who he's on drugs is worried about his friend who isn't because he's a Christian. He says he's worried that he's going to get all weird and he's going to be hyper-religious. But then what the author says is as he continued to go to parties, he began to feel more and more uncomfortable at parties. And he tells the story where he's at a party at his house and he just is uncomfortable. He's had enough, so he goes to his room, he shuts the door, he prays to God something like, okay, God, if you're real, you need to show me something. And he looks down and I guess his parents had given him a Bible and it had just been poking out from under the bed. So he picks the Bible up, he flips open, and he lands at Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is what Ezekiel 18, uh, 31 and 32 says. Throw off all transgressions you have committed. And get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. He said it freaked him out. So he flipped over to the New Testament. And he fell, his Bible fell to Romans 2.4, which says this. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? said it freaked him out again. And so at, at Christmas break, he goes back home to his house, and he said he was doing some drugs, and just after midnight, he got sober. And he felt overwhelmed, and he had this burden to call his friend. And so he calls his friend on Christmas break after midnight. 
and he said his friend came to his house with tears rolling down his cheeks and carrying his Bible. The author said his friend told him that, that he said he, he told his friend, I need to know more about God. And his friend asked him, do you know what I was doing the moment when you called me? Resurrected souls long for different things than dead souls. We grow in Christ. Verse 15. But as the one who called you is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is being written for people who are in the midst of facing persecution. Peter is telling them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that persecution you're facing is not your biggest issue. Your biggest issue is not outside of you. It is inside of you. It's the sin that dwells within us. And so Peter tells him, be holy, which means distinct, which means set apart. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to share that story with you is because his friend was set apart and distinct as he sat at the party. And I cannot imagine how awkward it must have been sitting on that couch. (laughs) Seeing your friend who you came to share the gospel with completely reject you and make fun of you and have passing comments made about you by drunk people all night long. Yet the call is to be holy. Because God is holy. And when we think of holy, we tend to think of perfection. And there are similarities there, but really what holiness means is distinct set apart and of all of the attributes that God is, has which are mentioned in scripture we say God is love God is grace God is kindness etc there's there's a lot of them one attribute in all of the Bible gets the most emphatic treatment so in scripture if a word is repeated back to back it means that we should take note of what that word is it's meant to to perk our ears up so that we know whatever's being said is important here oh here is an example But if a word is repeated three times in the Bible, it means it takes an unusual precedent over the others. 
and there is one attribute of God that is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what that means is that it is the dominant attribute of God. So God is love, but he's not just a blank love. God is a holy love. And God is grace, but but he's not just a blank grace. He's a holy grace. And God is kind, but it's not just this generic kindness. It's a holy kindness that he is distinct and he is set apart. God is perfect, but his perfection is a holy perfection. So what is being commanded of us here is to be holy like God is holy. The problem is we can't. In and of ourselves, we cannot do anything to make ourselves be holy like God is holy. That's why we're in this predicament that we're in. We're not holy. That we sin. That it's in our hearts that sin dwells. And the sin has separated us from God. And we are separate because God is holy and we are not. He's distinct. So how do we keep this command? We turn Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. See, what what we were taught in the first 12 verses that we have a hope that's imperishable, an inheritance that's guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection kept in heaven, that we await the praise, the glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And because we have this salvation by grace, we can put our hope, our trust in Jesus. Because of that, we're being made holy. We're being brought into the image of God. And I love, like, in, in, in my Bible, when, when Peter quotes one of the Old Testament, I don't think you can see it because your eyes are not great. Just zoom in, squint, and you can see it. When Peter quotes the Old Testament, directly it bolds it and you can look and see that what Peter's quoting is he's quoting Leviticus 19.2 and in Leviticus when, when, when the law is being laid down what, what Moses is telling his audience is to embrace your status as elect aliens amongst the world elect sojourners exiles that Moses is commanding Israel that we are entering into this this promised land, but there's going to be a lot of pagan, a lot of debauchery, a lot of things around us, that what we're called to do is to maintain our distinction, the holiness that God has placed upon us. That that in this distinction, we're we're not being mean and saying like we're better than somebody else. What we're doing is magnifying what God has done and exalting His glory and His gospel and calling others to live in that with us and so Peter picks up that language for his audience that's also living as elect exiles scattered across much of Asia Minor and he is saying the world is going to look very different than you and what he's going to get into and what much of it is that's why you're being persecuted you don't look like the world but he urges them to stay strong He reminds them that the call is to be holy because God is holy. And the only way we are made holy is by the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is so important. Because Jesus dies the death that you and I deserve for being unholy and being sinners. That he bears the wrath of God on the cross that we deserve. And 
not just that he takes our punishment, but he also imputes to us his righteousness, that we're counted as righteous because of Jesus. We're counted as holy because of what Christ has done, that we're justified if we're believers in the moment of salvation, that God the judge hammers the gavel down and he says, just, justified if we're believers in Jesus Christ. That's his legal ruling on our heart. And if that's his legal ruling on our hearts, if that's our new status, then our life slowly conforms into being made more holy like God. That's what sanctification means. And one day we will die or Jesus will come back. And it's in that moment that our sanctification will be complete and that we will be glorified and brought with the Lord. We are made holy because Jesus is holy. So to do this means we must ready our minds for action. That we don't accidentally grow in holiness. That's not how it works. It's not like physical growth where you wake up and your kids are now 6 foot 12 and when they went to sleep they were 3 foot 9. It's not accidental. It's intentional and it's deliberate. That God changes our hearts if we're believers in Jesus Christ and he gives us new desires. And these new desires over the course of time make us more holy that we grow in God. We talked about this at, at men's breakfast this morning. We were talking about marriage and how wives just keep poking at us and make us more holy. We said that within our hearts there's these, these rooms that we enter into these rooms and we realize there's all sorts of things in this room. So we begin cleaning out these rooms and inevitably in our hearts what's in those rooms is selfishness and pride and arrogance and, and all sorts of things. And so we clean out those rooms and when we clean out those rooms what we realize is that there's a door at the back of the room. And so we open that and what we see is there's another room that's filled with just as much pride and arrogance and deceit. And so we begin cleaning that room out. And when we get that room out cleaned out, we see there's a door at the back of it and so on and so forth that we work our way through our hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. But we also see that there's a hope. That we prepare our minds for action, that we're sober-minded, that we're clearly thinking because there's hope. Hope is a lot like faith. That the two words are very similar, but faith has more of an immediate, like I have faith in what the Lord is doing with me now, while hope is I'm having faith in what the Lord is going to do. That I trust God. That we have this hope, and it is completely on God's grace. I want to live my life in such a way that if I'm wronged about the gospel, I look like a fool and I lose everything. But if I'm right, Nothing created can shake the foundation of my life. Not because my faith is strong, but because my God is. And so if our minds are ready for action, if we're sober-minded, if we have this hope that's completely on the grace of God, then our next response is to obey what God says. Even when it feels odd. Even when everything about the world is telling us to disobey or to rebel against what God has for us, we obey. We grow in holiness. And as we grow in holiness, what we'll see that, that Peter's going to bring up is you look a lot different than the world. That you look strange. That you look like you don't belong here. And the reality 
belong to the kingdom of God. And our jobs, if we're Christians, is to take that gospel that Peter proclaims in the first 12 verses and to share it with other people so that they, too, might come into that kingdom that God has for them. That with our words and with our actions, we proclaim Christ and him crucified, and that is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I am so grateful that every week I don't have to come up with some new things for us to do to get God, that every week when we gather together and we open your word and we work book by book and verse by verse through your revealed Bible to us, what we see, God, is that you are the center. And that everything that we do is based on what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray for anybody who's here or who hears this that is an unbeliever. That much like the story I shared, that, that you would stir within their hearts this discomfort with the way things are. A discomfort that can't be fixed with things of the world. And that God, you would use us, that you would use somebody, that you would use a believer to share your gospel with them and that they could repent and believe. God, for those of us who, who are believers here, I pray that we would hear this message and we would understand, God, the call is to be holy, but we fail at that far more often than we want to admit. But God, our faith is not in how holy we are, it's in how holy you are. It's in the object, you, God. Help us to know you more. Help us to grow in you more, God. Strengthen our faith by revealing to us more of yourself through your word. Help us to worship you together this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray.